Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Tackling Threats to Religious Freedom in China. Please welcome Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center here at Heritage. This is really bittersweet for me because this is actually the last time that I will moderate a discussion on this stage as a Heritage employee. It's been nearly 10 years since I've started here, and so I have a ton of incredible memories that have been made on this very stage. So I guess you could say that this program is extra special for me. Um, so I'm excited that we're gonna be focusing on religious freedom in China today. This is an issue that's near and dear to my heart. And I think that while the world has turned its attention toward China, usually we tend to focus on the Chinese Communist Party, the threat that the party poses to the US and to global interests its provocations in the security space, and concerns over its economically coercive actions. And while every single aspect of the CCP's behavior is of immense concern, I want to center our discussion today on the party's persecution of the Chinese people. My dear friend Ziba Murat, a Uyghur, whose mom Gulshan Abbas is currently held in the camps in Xinjiang, is not merely a victim of the CCP. She is a tireless advocate for her mom's freedom, writing op-eds in the Washington Post, briefing multiple secretaries of state, traveling to Geneva to plead her mom's case with international leaders. She's a working mom with a little girl at home who she desperately hopes has the chance to hug her grandma one day. She is a person. My other friend, Joey Su, is a Hong Kong American who marched side by side with pro-democracy advocates in Hong Kong like Joshua Wong, fighting for freedom. And she is not a victim of the CCP. Instead, she is an inspiration. Her continued work and efforts on behalf of the Hong Kong people are tireless. Even my friends who are going to be joining me today on the stage, Chinese-American Christian Bob Fu, as well as Uyghur-American Nuri Turkle, are not victims of the CCP, but survivors who have devoted their lives in defense of the cause of freedom. And there are so many people for whom they owe a debt of gratitude to both Nuri and to Bob for their freedom. We hear many stories, and I think it's really easy to categorize them as mere anecdotes. But they constitute real people who are fighting to defend not only their freedom, but the freedoms of so many whose fundamental rights are under threat in China. We're going to cover the gamut today from Chinese Christians to the plight of Uyghur Muslims. And I'm hoping we'll also have time to touch on Tibetan Buddhists, persecuted Catholics, and other communities that are facing persecution. When I first began planning this program with friends at International Christian Concern, we purposefully chose this week. In the aftermath of both the International Religious Freedom, a civil society-led effort to highlight religious freedom, and the Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom, because we wanted to uh, this discussion to serve as a reminder that the work never ends. We wanted to build off the momentum of these important gatherings to keep the conversations going, and so here we are today. I would challenge everyone, both on this stage and in the audience, to really take stock of the practical actions that panelists outline that can help remediate the suffering of the Chinese people, and that we would recognize the courage of our speakers, many of whom speak at their own peril to prioritize religious freedom in a faraway land. It is on this note that I would like to invite my friend, Nuri Turkle, recently appointed chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom to the stage. And Nuri is not just the USERF chairman, he also has recently published his own memoir, No Escape, and for his day job is an attorney. So Nuri is a man of, of many talents. Nuri, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Olivia, for the kind introduction. I, it's a bittersweet sweet for me. It's been a pleasure working with you, and thank you very much for all you have done. Uh, over the years, uh, specifically in the case of Uyghurs, uh, you were shining a spotlight, organizing events, writing, and speaking to educate the American public and policymakers, calling for the, calling them to action. Thank you very much. 
Um, as Olivia noted, I represent here the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom that was created in 1998 under the mandate of the International Religious Freedom Act. Under the legislative mandate, there are nine commissioners appointed by president and congressional leadership serving with two-year term. We, under the mandate, we issue annual religious freedom report. Um, just reading uh, this year's report, uh, the trend line in China when it comes to religious freedom is disturbing. There's no progress been made. Uh, in fact, the religious uh, persecutions has been intensified. Uh, the government continued to vigorously implement its synthesization of religion and demand that the religious groups adherence to support Chinese Communist Party's rule and ideology. That's where the problem lies. Uh, specifically, the most vulnerable groups have been, as reported as uh, in media and also as well governmental reports, have been uh, the Christians and the Uyghur Muslims. As you all know that the China has been waging genocide against the Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims, uh, particularly in the last, uh, since late, late 2016. Uh, so far, the United States government and eight other parliaments uh, have recognized the atrocities committed against the Uyghurs as a genocide, but this genocide is still underway. And in addition to the Uyghurs, as uh, Olivia noted, other minorities, religious minorities, have been also subject to persecution in China. The Tibetan community, the Catholics, for example, uh, Chinese have intensified persecution of Protestants by harassing, uh, detaining, arresting, and physically abusing leaders of the house churches who refused to join state-controlled three self-patriotic movement. And also, we also have to recognize the suffering of the Falun Gong practitioners. Based on the reports that we received, the Chinese government is still treating this uh, religious group as a cult and uh, continue to arrest and, and punish those followers. So we have recommended the, China to be the country of uh, particular concern, CPC, again this year. That has been the case since 1999. We also recommended the United States government to impose sanctions, visa ban, to those officials and entities who have been facilitating enabling human rights abuses in China. We also recommended the United States government to work with the like-minded governments to uh, hold the Chinese officials to account and using the legal tools available in their toolbox and make it uh, stop their atrocities. And also, we have asked, uh, recommended the United States Congress and U.S. government to enact legislative more legal tools and also fully implement the existing legal tools. So why there's no improvement in religious freedom issues in China, particularly since Xi Jinping took power? When Xi Jinping looks around uh, in the society, he's plenty of potential threat to his power. History, civic engagement, activists most relevant to Xi, now the religion, all have a capacity to energize large massive, masses of people in pursuit of goals, counter the CCP's power and legitimacy. Xi has developed succinct strategy toward any potential religious institution that could detract from his own singular authority, that is to cop out what could be useful to his own power and destroy the rest. She and his predecessors have long employed dual-track strategies towards religion. As you know that China has a constitution that guarantees uh, religious freedom, uh, specifically those state-sanctioned religious groups. But anyone found to be practicing in unsanctioned religious activities, including providing venue, for them is subject to criminal persecution. And now, disturbingly, Xi Jinping stressed the cynicization of religion and has commissioned reinterpretation of key religious texts from the major religion present in China. That includes Quran, Bible, and other religious teaching uh, materials. The CCP also calls for comprehensive evaluation of the existing religious cl classics aiming at the contents which do not conform with the progress of the Times. This is a specific quote from the Xi Jinping uh, speeches. While the religious freedom has been treated in such a dismal way, we have to also think of, don't forget, that the role of technology 
uh, and its use uh, in religious persecution. As reported, uh, more than 80 countries currently being uh, in the process of or already adopted Chinese surveillance technology. That is a threat to religious liberty, that is a threat to privacy, that also enables uh, not only the Chinese uh, security forces, but also despots around the world to continue to uh, persecute its religious minorities. Religion poses a unique threat to the party because it provides a compelling and empowering alternative to its own ideology and cult of personality. The only worship the only worship the party is truly compatible, comfortable with its own adulation and policies. Com communities with a mission that cares about human rights and human decency appeal to power, power, of high, uh, power higher than the party, associate with identify fundamentally distinct from the Chinese that are uh, CCP's nightmare, and engage highly organized religious populations in existential threat to CCP because of incompatible religious freedom and practices are with the rule of the CCP. This has been the case with the Uyghur. People often focus on the geopolitical aspect of the Chinese uh, policymakers' thinking, but in essence, Chinese uh, authority, specifically the policymakers within the CCP, sees Uyghur Islam in particular, in the case of Uyghur genocide, as a potential threat and also a sign of disloyalty. If the world's democracies cannot bring themselves together to care about the religious persecution in China, and, and uh, don't take the exportation now of the Chinese surveillance technology to, to uh, persecute religious minorities, then uh, we should uh, examine our uh, approach. And this is, this is a, a, oftentimes the religious freedom, human rights issues are treated as something distant. But in the end, if we fail to recognize and fail to uh, catch the warning signs, we end up being a humanitarian crisis, genocide, or war in some instances. So um, the international uh, system uh, is essentially is not being very helpful in the case of uh, religious uh, persecuted religious minorities in China. But we have to come up with something more tangible. Uh, we can start with domestic laws that are available, uh, specifically in the case of the, um, the Uyghur genocide. There are companies that have been identified as enablers in the ongoing genocide. The United States government must open an investigation, and specifically those companies that have been added to the State Department's in, uh, entity list. In conclusion, I wanted to reiterate that the religious freedom abuses cannot go under challenge, unchallenged, whether caused by the government, government action, or inaction. Research has found that the countries that uphold religious freedom have more vibrant democratic political institutions, rising economic and social well-being, diminished tension and violence, and greater stability. And this should be the a, a norm that the Chinese citizen, uh, Chinese leadership, Chinese uh, policymakers should be kept in mind instead of spending uh, more money on domestic security than national defense. That shows that they are uh, afraid of on their own people and investing on something that could naturally uh, uh, goes against the, uh, the initial goal. Uh, if they let the people alone, uh, the stability that they're trying to achieve could be realized uh, seamlessly. Nations that triple, as I noted, uh, like the one in China, uh, the government in China and others, end up uh, being in a very unstable, uh, violent uh, situation. And we have seen this over and over again. In the last 10 years alone, the international community have seen three genocidal acts. And recently concluded Earth Summit Ambassador Sam Brownback reminded us in the last 50 years, all the genocide being committed specifically against vulnerable uh, religious groups. So this is on us. We need to speak out. We need to hold those perpetrators to account. We also hold our uh, elected officials to speak uh, truthfully uh, when they see religious persecution around the world. Thank you very much. All right. I would now like to invite my other Bob and Tim to please join me on the stage. <laughs> well,
Wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. And thank you to Nuri for those wonderful opening remarks. I think they really helped set the tone for our conversation today. Um, June, I'm going to turn to you first. Um, June Lynn joins us from Freedom House, where she serves as the senior program officer for their Asia programs. And June is actually standing in this, this entire program is a miracle, by the way, um, because I almost missed my flight last night. Bob flew in from Texas. We had several people who stood in. Uh, many of you may have seen that Annie uh, from Freedom House was originally supposed to join and Jeff from ICC, but we literally have people who stepped up to the plate here and so just super grateful for that. Um, but June, thanks for joining us today. Um, uh, especially at such, such last minute notice. Um, so you work broadly on Asia at Freedom House. A lot of your work is centered around civil society, especially in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, but I know that Freedom House has done a ton of work on religious freedom. There's some seminal reports that Sarah Cook and others have worked on. Can you highlight some of the key trends from those reports? Um, what did you guys find related to religious freedom? And you know, some of those reports are a little bit older. What, what has happened since you put out uh, those reports? And we're happy to link to them and send them out um, to folks who are joining us online as well. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Olivia, for the introduction. Um, this topic is certainly dear to Freedom House's heart. Across from our advocacy research program and emergency program team, we are all, um, this is a topic and issue that's um, highly prioritized. And um, protection for religious freedom has broadly declined in China over the past decade, especially since she took power in 2012. Um, and thank you, Nuri, for the really um, sobering opening remarks. Um, we see the condition that's faced by Uyghurs, as described by Nuri, has reached across, across communities of faith. faith. Um, the expansion of CCP's control into more areas of daily lives has severely affected um, the religious and spiritual community as well. And in our 2017 report conducted by our wonderful Sarah Cook, um, we see that on religious revival, repression, and resistance in China, Freedom House has found that repression has worsened for Uyghur Muslim, um, Tibetan Buddhism, and Protestant Christian, but also for Hui Muslim, though um, the situation they face might not be as um, severe as um, the Uyghur population right now. But moreover, um, over the past five years, and especially during the pandemic, um, in addition to the worsening atrocities, um, committed against the Turkic Muslims and Uyghurs. Um, we also see that communities um, such as Catholics and Falun Gong, um, who, who seem to be facing a slightly more optimistic trajectory, um, have seen that reverse as well. Um, so the, for the Catholic, um, though um, while the agreement between the um, Vatican and the Chinese government has reduced tensions um, over the appointment of bishops, but um, ordinary believers and clergy belonging to the underground church still continues to face um, severe pressure to join state-approved churches and even face detention. And moreover, um, for the Falun Gong community, as um, the practitioner has played such an important role in sharing uncensored information, um, not only about their religious faith, but also about persecution and other broader details on condition um, during the COVID-19 lockdowns, um, both with people inside and outside of China. And because of that, um, they have becoming more of a target for the authorities um, and resulting in larger scale of arrest and several long prison sentences as, as we've seen. Um, and more broadly, religious believer and activists on behalf of the rights of ethnic minorities continue to be the key targets subject to high-tech surveillance as we observe um, and prosecution for what they write in applications like WeChat. And um, our, um, our publication has covered several multiple cases of Tibetans who has also been being sentenced to prisons because of writing on issues related to their culture or faith in closed app or, or even other communication means. 
And um, aside from that, we do want to highlight a trend of increased transnational repression that we've seen both in, um, in the U.S. and other spaces as well. And that trend has really extends to the broader um, borders beyond China and um, sometimes even with um, life or death implication and physical risk um, to the practitioners and activists. And another trend we would like to highlight that we think deserves greater attention is a precarious situation for religious freedom in Hong Kong. Uh, following the adoption of national security law two years ago, um, we've seen a wide range of rights related to elections, media freedom, freedom of assembly, due process, and political participation being suppressed. And that results in dozens of prosecutions. But now, over the coming year, um, we do want to highlight that the authorities in Hong Kong and Beijing might be turning their sights and attention um, towards religious community, especially Catholics and Falun Gong practitioners. Um, and we think the arrest in May for the Cardinal Zen was a watershed moment in that regard. Wow, thank you, June. I think you really gave us a good broad overview of what the landscape looks like in China, and I appreciate you highlighting some of these next sort of concerns that we should be watching. I agree with you. I think Cardinal Zen's arrest was a huge watershed moment and something that easily could fall out of the news cycle, so I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Bob, I want to turn to you in order to zero in a little bit more on a single community, on Chinese Christians. Um, Bob is joining us from China Aid, where he's both the founder and the president. Um, he has done, honestly, unparalleled work uh, with the underground church. And as I said in my opening remarks, uh, it's due to him that a lot of people are free and, and here in the U.S. today. Um, Bob, uh, can you share with us a bit about your experience working um, with the underground church, working with Chinese Christians? Um, and can you talk a little bit to us about what conditions look like for Chinese Christians today? Yeah, first of all, yeah, thank you, Olivia, now uh, hosting this uh, event. Thanks for our partner, ICC, um, make this uh, um, very powerful report uh, available. Um, as uh, Chairman uh, Nurkel just, uh, uh, Turkle, sorry, uh, just uh, mentioned, um, Really, the CCP, and to be more exact, as uh, President Xi Jinping really declared a war against religious faith. As long as you are not totally surrendered and dedicated to your absolute loyalty to President Xi himself and the Communist Party ideology, even the so-called supposedly legally registered, pr protected, government-sanctioned, three self-patriotic movement churches actually now has been being targeted for very severe persecution. This is a new feature we have not seen. I think um, without any exaggeration, of course, we have seen the genocide, of course. Uh, we have seen... Um, uh, other forms of uh, uh, policy uh, shift, but I think we can very surely conclude that religious persecution against religious faiths has reached the worst time that we have not seen since the end of cultural revolution. Some measures even worse since the beginning of the cultural revolution, like genocide. And we have seen, uh, in terms of the uh, persecution against Christians, we have seen, the, um, according to our own tracking, um, we have been tracking the per religious persecution, especially the Christian community, very closely in, since uh, maybe 30 years ago. And we can confidently uh, see, even with the uh, the secret agreement with the Vatican, uh, uh, the uh, number of uh, enforced disappearance of Catholics, uh, Catholic uh, priests. I mean, just like in the uh, province of uh, Hebei, uh, in the past few months, we have seen uh, more than a few, I mean, uh, thousands of priests 
just uh, suddenly disappeared. Nobody could ever, I mean, locate them. And for the uh, Protestant Christians, not only, as I just mentioned, the target against the, pro- the traditionally um, kind of uh, regarded as uh, illegally, uh, I mean, illegal, independent, underground or house churches, of course they are being targeted more severely, but the, the government-sanctioned churches, we're talking about the, the three self-patriotic moment churches. Traditionally, the Communist Party with this uh, white paper in public setting and uh, claim, you know, those churches are supposed to be like uh, off-limit, like uh, they are protected. But look in the past few years, we have seen those uh, pastors were sentenced to like eight years, ten years imprisonment. For what? For simply refusing to tear down, to voluntarily tear down uh, the cross from the rooftop of the church buildings. And we have seen the, some even higher rank patriotic moment leader, you know, organization, religious leaders, uh, simply, you know, criticizing or uh, advising the Communist Party to stop that kind of repressive policy, uh, forcing tear down, tearing, uh, burning down of uh, hundreds of uh, 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 thousands, actually, of the crosses from the rooftop of the church building, were disappeared or being removed from their pastoral rule under house arrest. Of course, uh, now the Xi Jinping passed uh, several laws or regulations even to regulate or pr- uh, retroactively persecute those uh, Christians who travel to overseas before the pandemic to attend a Bible study in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And now they're being arrested group by groups and being now facing long-term imprisonment. And I want to just mention uh, another feature, that is the CCP's transnational repression had extended its long arm beyond its borders. I mean, we have eyewitness who herself I mean, basically, not only experience, but witnessing the Uyghurs were being kidnapped in Dubai, UAE, into the Chinese diplomats, Chinese consulate general personally uh, managed a black jail in Dubai, in UAE. She saw that. I mean, a villa transformed into a Chinese prison in Dubai, with Uyghurs were crying, was uh, basically day and night in that torture chamber, said, I was just uh, heading to Turkey, why do you intercept me from the UAE, uh, the Dubai International Airport, and put me in a dark prison cell? And we have seen a church from Shenzhen called the Holy Reformed Covenant Church uh, with affiliation with the American Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, uh, ordained a Chinese pastor in Shenzhen because of the severe persecution. Their private school were totally knocked down. The children were forced to go to a Communist Party, uh, uh, communism propaganda brainwashed school, and pastor cannot even go back to his own home. So they voted, and before the pandemic, and they all escaped to Jeju Island, South Korea, because that is the only island uh, or territory South Korea allow the Chinese passport holders to get there uh, without needing a visa. And in the past, uh, you know, about two years, um, this, this church had been experiencing the transnational CCP's repression. I mean, I have documented, I mean, the church has documented here every incidence that the Chinese Communist Party basically uh, uh, had been arresting, uh, uh, um, interrogating, threatening their family members. Forty-four incidents already in all over 
I mean, different provinces in China. The family members, the mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters were all taken for interrogation, kidnapping, and basically said, your family member in Jeju Island are committing treason, like betraying your country. As late as uh, really just uh, uh, this, uh, uh, this month, and we have seen the Communist Party not only interrogating, kidnapping their family members, but using their consulates in Jeju Island, a South Korean sovereign nation, at least 11 times they call these members in Jeju, in Jeju Island and threaten them and ask them to go back to China, return to China, or, uh, or go uh, visit the consulate to volunteer to be repatriated back to China. And unfortunately, I mean, one incident, I mean, the uh, South Korean consulate in Guangzhou was even coerced to call these members of the church and declare them as illegal and um, of course, the South Korean government um, and their courts were not helpful. And uh, out of fear of China, I mean, I couldn't find any other explanation. They were all denied asylum. Every one of them had been denied from both administration to various courts, from the lower court, intermediate court, and now 34 of them are in the, uh, uh, going to be in the Supreme Court. And 60 people, 29 children, you know, 31 children, 29 adults, with four, I mean, three women are pregnant, with four babies are coming. And they are left there, homeless, and basically, I mean, countryless, stateless, fearful, and being pursued every day. So uh, when, yeah, can we wake up, you know, the world for the CCP's long arms? I mean, uh, as the dream just mentioned, in Hong Kong, of course, and uh, even in the United States, the Communist Party are trying to coerce the, the Chinese churches here in the U.S. I was even disinvited uh, for, like, some conferences that they already, the church invited me to speak because Basically, the church leaders found, oh, we have family members are being already threatened, including ch American churches in this town, in Washington, D.C. They finally yeah, removed that. Yeah, stop wow. there. That's crazy. Thank you, Bob, for giving um, such vivid examples of the CCP's persecution. I think the one that um, really stands out to me is just this idea that the CCP has to go and physically remove crosses from churches because the cross itself is just so daunting to them. They are so fearful of it. And I think that's a really poignant image. So thank you for, for highlighting that. Um, so we're going to turn over to you, Tim. Uh, so grateful to the ICC for partnering with us uh, with this event. And I think a couple of people have mentioned um, this recent report that ICC has put out. Um, you can get a copy actually as you leave. Um, some of you may have gotten them when you come in, but there's a table just in the back. Um, and I, I really encourage everyone to check this out. It is really seminal work from the ICC. And I know that, um, Tim, you're going to speak to us a little bit more about it today. Um, Tim Carruthers is the Advocacy Manager for Southeast Asia at International Christian Concern. We're really grateful to have you here today. Um, as I mentioned, ICC has recently released this new report um, looking at trends in religious freedom around the globe, specifically the worst persecutors. Um, and you identified China as one of the main authoritarian persecutors of persons of faith. Can you talk a little bit more about the report and some of the trends that it does highlight? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Olivia, for hosting, uh, hosting us and giving us this opportunity to chat about this really important topic. Uh, our report uh, is titled The Persecutor of the Year for this year, and we identified 16 different oppressors this year, looking at um, you know, trends in persecution we've seen rise. Um, and China is one that is unavoidable to always address you know, when it comes to scale um, and the government apparatus that, that's really operating the persecution. Um, and 
and we know for Christians, uh, our organization, you know, is uh, represents you know many Christians in different countries around the world, and we know Christians, you know, are persecuted in China, and we know maybe not to the severity that we see what's happening with the genocide of Uyghurs and to the Falun Gong, but on the sheer size and scale, we're seeing China trying to subvert an entire faith through sanitization um, and through forced disappearances and arrests, and so China's really one that we cannot do this report every year and avoid at any any point. Um, and so I please encourage you to yeah, take a copy and take a look at it, because um, we've really been seeing the church, as Bob said, is this is one of the worst times of persecution uh, in China in its history. I go back to, or in its, you know, modern history, um, even the stories of the disappearing priests reminds me of, you know, Cardinal Kung in, you know, the 1950s disappearing for his refusal to join the state-sponsored church. Um, and we're seeing that same thing again. As we were doing this report, we had a testimony from a pastor in uh, Guiyang City who his refusal in 2015 for his church to join the three self-patriotic movement ended up seeing the government clamp down on them incredibly hard and himself being arrested um, and being charged with some of the most outlandish crimes, including um, sub, um, creating public disturbance, uh, holding on to state secrets, and distributing state secrets only to have that be the members of the church itself. Um, and we're seeing these ridiculous charges being levied against pastors, basically making an example of them, because if you operate outside of the state-sanctioned church, uh, you have no place here, and the government does not want you doing that. Um, is that there's something we've seen that's so powerful in people of faith that the government just does not want to see that grow, um, and we're seeing the government trying to derail that with, through, you know, subverted faith, and then through also generational reform. Is one of the things we wanted to highlight in our report is looking at the idea of, you know, under-18s cannot attend religious education in China, and there's this push to see um, Chinese Christians and the next generation cut off completely, and it makes these house churches to be such a critical thing um, because, yeah, they're able to try and avoid the these regulations, and China's really playing the long game into basically crushing faith going forward. And then we see the um, the clergy and the regulations against clergy making it harder for churches to practice and to operate, and we're seeing them creating opportunities to pr push for national unity and pushing the love of country, and they're bringing this idea where the church is basically supposed to be a tool of state power to propagate the authority of the state, and it's incredibly concerning because your failure to do that as a clergy puts you in line with somebody who is not promoting that, or it was something the charge we've seen is subverting state authority and subverting state power, and it really creates this almost securitized lens around religion and puts them in really, you know, deadly and hostile crosshairs of the government, and we're seeing that then being expanded to Hong Kong, and we're watching the slide of, you know, religion and your, your religious freedoms in Hong Kong in real time. And so that's something we can watch as we see, you know, religious institutions and um, education that are backed by religious organizations basically seeking or being forced into loyalty to the state and this new pro-Beijing government. And so, you know, we're incredibly concerned. And so that's why we wanted to highlight China as, you know, they didn't end up being, our, I think, our top persecutor this year, but it's something that we cannot go um, a second without wanting to address and put in front of everybody. Um, and I'm glad, you know, Bob and June mentioned, you know, the transnational oppression because that is something we are seeing. We are seeing an attempt to whitewash what's happening in China and to basically hide and through goodwill influence. You know, and we're seeing people afraid to talk about it. We're seeing it in our universities. I was just downstairs when I got here and Fox News was talking about the idea of um, some of the espionage going on in universities. And it's just a reminder because I remember being in university myself and having students from China saying that they are afraid of their colleagues if they are to speak out in China in an international relations class, that they feel that they'll be reported to the embassy. And it's just a really scary time to not be talking about this because China's a big deal in our world. Um, and if we continue to look away, and so our report is trying to capture what's happening and take it to the Western church, take it to believe and show this is what's happening. Let's stop looking at what just we're arguing about on the news. This is what's happening in China, and it's egregious. Yeah, that's so great, and I think serves as a really valuable reminder. Your, your report adds to this conversation where I think the world is waking up to the reality that the Chinese Communist Party is, poses the greatest threat to global norms, to values, to human rights, and we're seeing this in just such tangible ways as individuals like Cardinal Zenz, like the many um, persecuted individuals who are now being you know, threatened with extradition in Jeju Island, like so many folks um, who are really suffering under this regime. 
Um, I'm looking, I'm cognizant of the time. And I, I had two questions that I wanted to ask you guys um, before we turn it over to the audience. And I should say, audience members, prepare your questions now. And I know we also have people joining online. So if they can submit their questions as well, um, we'll be happy to take those. But I'm going to combine the two questions that I had into one. Um, and my, my question is this. One, what have we gotten right when it comes to religious freedom advocacy, um, both at the civil society and the government level? And then two, uh, you know, what's the next line in the fight in each of your opinions? Just very, you know, short, brief answers. I know there's a lot uh, to cover here, but maybe June, if we can start with you and, and go down the row here real quick. Sure, definitely. We think um, keeping sanction in our toolbox is definitely important. That includes um, imposing visa and economic sanction on both individual officials but also companies who's coerced into these atrocities. And of course the sanction wouldn't be possible without um, laws like IRFFA and Global Magnitsky Act. Um, but it, it is really encouraging for us to see um, both administration um, being willing to use this tool. And um, we also heard anecdote from civil society members that um, these, the message does get through. Um, there are local officials um, who heard the message, um, grassroots activists also heard the message. And we also seen in some cases where the sanction actually potentially contribute to uh, the releases from detention in some parts of the country. Um, and related to that, our recommendation is having a more strategic and targeted sanctioning that includes um, targeting the higher up CCP hierarchy, but that also includes uh, more strategic geographically targeted sanction. For example, applying targeted sanction in provinces where uh, a lot of practitioner has been prosecuted, for example, in Guizhou and Zhejiang, where um, Christians have been prosecuted and beaten, in province like Liaoning and Heilongjiang, where Falun Gong practitioners are severely prosecuted, um, something in long, along those lines to make this tool more powerful. And in, in addition to that, we also urge the U.S. officials um, and U.S. government to improve communication with community leaders and people who are actually facing this um, prosecution um, in the front line. So um, having officials, ambassador meeting with community leaders, meeting with religious leader who's um, really seeing what's going on in the front line, we think those two things are very important. Mm -hmm. yeah. And June, you raising the example of GLOMAG and otherwise reminds me of what a critical role Freedom House has played in organizing submissions that have made it possible for a lot of the individuals that are already targeted to be targeted. So thank you for your work on that. Bob? Yeah, I think we did right by um, raising the religious freedom issue as a priority in the foreign policy and national security agenda, not just uh, you know under the sideline on the bottom of a religious, I mean, human rights uh, category. I think from the Bush 43 to um, uh, President Trump and um, uh, the the uh, President Biden, even I think to make either convening the Religious uh, uh, Freedom Summit and even convene an unprecedented uh, meeting in the UN General Assembly uh, and uh, also the Religious Freedom uh, Alliance, like a uh, little Religious Freedom NATO, I call it. I think these are very important because CCP, if you saw uh, Xi Jinping's speech at the um, the VOCs, uh, the the uh, papers, uh, the police, Chinese uh, police, pa secret police papers, he took it very seriously. Religious freedom to him is a, a, re a national security threat, is a threat to their regime. Um, so I think that was right. And also the uh, 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 sanction, um, uh, I think, mechanism was also uh, good. Um, but I would just uh, emphasize two things. One is that we agree with June that we need to have more targeted sanctions and why the PLA, you know, generals are not sanctioned uh, when they send a military cargo plane to Cambodia and, and under the watch of the UNHCR officials pick up one by one these 30 or 40 Uyghur uh, refugees, I mean, put them in a military cargo plane and flow them repeated them back and basically why they're not, you know, a sanction there. And secondly, I mean, why Xi Jinping is not on the sanction list, right? 
Everybody agrees, you know, C needs to be. He's on the top, responsible, engineering this genocide. Number two is really the, um, the, uh, to prioritize those who, uh, refugees or asylum seekers, uh, out, I mean, as a uh, priority uh, number one. It's called, I mean, in the uh, State Department, I mean, we, it's one thing we just keep talking about, you know, the persecution and put on the C, uh, CPC list. Uh, the, it's another thing we need to really match, you know, our action with our mouth, with our words. And uh, these uh, 60 members in Jeju Island, why we have not really, you know, recognized them as refugee and resettled them in the United States, as they are commonly known as the Mayflower Church, the modern Mayflower Church. And uh, so, I mean, unfortunately, in the past uh, even few years, uh, despite of uh, President Biden's effort to put more quotas on refugee resettlement, and I quote the Washington Post or New York Times report, because not, um, uh, in, at least not the last fiscal year, not a single Chinese uh, uh, refugee, uh, acknowledged refugee, was resettled into the United States of America, including Uyghurs, including Christians, I mean, any others. Uh, so that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I think we need to really put a little bit pressure on our government. Yeah, I'm so glad you raised the Xinjiang police files. Christina only from Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation is actually here and her colleague Adrian Sens was absolutely critical in uncovering that VOC has done such incredible work. Everyone should check it out. Um, actually, it's the first time that we've had vivid pictures of Uyghurs that are currently held in detention. And if you look at those pictures, I think it's impossible to be arrested by the truth that there is ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity happening. So, yeah, glad that you raised that. Um, Tim? Uh, sure, yeah. No, I think uh, I appreciate everything uh, they said. And I think one of the things that we'd like to see more of is we see you know, the, the Senate and the you know, Congress and the President signing the Xinjiang Forced Labor Act, and we'd like to see these things that raise the idea of human rights as critical to our foreign policy is, is you know, human rights and international religious freedom are real issues and need to have real consequences. And we need to be uh, very forward about that. And then applying it to a whole of government approach is, yes, it's great that we did it there, but let's bring it to our, our policy as a whole is, is that we can't let the, the convenience um, and the great, um, you know, the, the great shipping and logistics we have with China be the thing that dictates our foreign policy and how we, um, you know, exude our values on the global stage um, and also making sure um, that we're just championing these these issues is being the ones to share the story and to say that we're not going to hide from these issues we're going to address them and we're going to make them known and we're going to talk about them when it comes to engaging with China is because these our values are the forefront of who we are as at least for the United States that's who we are and as Western governments who ascribe to religious freedom these values are who we are and so we need to address those and then also we need to be there for those who are here in the United States and supporting them and making sure um, that you know they feel safe here, their story is heard, and that you know we are not going to tolerate you know some of the transnationalist oppression stories, and that means putting programs in place from the government to support that and and making sure that yeah people are safe here when they come to the United States and so. That's so important. I'm so glad you brought up the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. I think it's one of the sharpest tools that we have in the toolkit to target what the Chinese Communist Party is doing, particularly to Uyghurs, but I think a lot of folks don't realize it's even broader um, than that. Um, and yeah, I would just add one thing that I think, and this has come up as a theme, I think the atrocity determination uh, for Uyghurs was also one of the more powerful actions that could have been taken and definitely would consider it a success as well as adding to what Bob said on, on the refugee front. But I know I, I want to open it up to um, our audience for Q&A. Um, we will have uh, two folks going around with, um, with microphones in order to answer questions. Just go ahead and raise your hand. And we can also take questions uh, from folks that are online too. Um, do we have any questions? Any online? Yeah, there's one online uh, question. Um, how can the Human Rights Council make a realistic difference towards more religious freedom in China? Human Rights Council. I'm guessing uh, in United yeah, Nations. Yeah, how can the Human Rights Council of the United Nations? Uh, I think just one of the main things I think, especially we saw in the news, is just bringing up human rights when you visit. I think uh, that's a big one, and I think that was something in the news uh, that I think a lot of people were disappointed on uh, when. 
I believe it was the commissioner visited a couple weeks Michelle ago. Bachelet. Yeah. She so should think, never have visited. Uh, yeah, just <laughs> highlighting it while you're there if you're going to go. So. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Make the visits count if you're doing any visits. So, yeah. yeah. It with the two uh, victims not singing, dancing with a wolf, right? Like uh, <laughs> Michelle did, <laughs> and between these victims. I mean, uh, that is a shame. Yeah, I mean, to my knowledge, when Michelle Bachelet visited Xinjiang, I don't think she raised by name any of the cases of individual Uyghurs that are held inside the camps. That's a huge missed opportunity. The UN also has a responsibility to ask for access in the most vulnerable places, and so they should have asked for access to the political re-education camps that we all know exist. There's satellite imagery analysis, there's the Xinjiang police files, there's countless reports that document that this is happening, and Michelle Bachelet couldn't do the bare minimum when she went. Um, so it is good to see that she's, I think, now gone, uh, or she's going to be stepping down soon, uh, but I think we should expect a whole lot more from the Human Rights Council than what they've given. But I think it's been, a, honestly, a failed tool for a very long time, not just in the Chinese case, but in many other cases for actually advocating for freedom and human rights. Uh, it's, it's an unfortunate missed opportunity. Yeah. Yes. Hi, thank you so much for being here, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for organizing this event. My name is John with the Tom Nantes Human Rights Commission, and I'd like to turn our attention briefly to the technological surveillance that's happening. Um, some would even argue that in China it's near impossible to live without Weixin, um, WeChat, where a lot of the digital um, communication happens. And for even some living outside, I think the reason why transnational um, repression is possible is because um, in order to communicate with people inside of China, people outside of China uh, feel obligated to use the social media platform that is most um, um, reliable in, inside that country. Um, and I, I think I saw a data somewhere that up to one billion um, plus users around the world are using WeChat on a monthly basis. Um, how do we reverse this kind of um, trend that we're seeing um, in light of the fact that religious oppression is happening using this very platform um, inside and outside of the country? Thank you so much. Um, maybe I can start first. Um, I definitely think one of the important things is to really um, empower and support the diasporic community that has the need to communicate inside of China, giving them the tool, giving them the knowledge to operate safely and be able to communicate or, or, or having um, the knowledge to make judgments about what action they take. Um, so to me, that is definitely very important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, China has already entered into this uh, digital tyranny age with uh, uh, the uh, these uh, uh, concentration camps are closely, you know, kind of uh, monitored with uh, the hick vision, these cameras, uh, as uh, the victims, one of the victims uh, we see and we. A partner together rescued uh, uh, an ethnic Kyrgyz uh, Christian uh, described vividly every corner inside the little cell, the confinement cell to the corner of uh, surrounding the, ca the camp um, has a, a face recognition camera even after he was released at <laughs> every corner of the street and within 15 minutes he said uh, if he kind of was shown on the corner of the street, he would be arrested. And the churches of the largest house church called Zion, uh, in Beijing, called Beijing Zion uh, House Church, I mean, they were being persecuted, shut down uh, after almost, I mean, two, uh, one decade of resistance, um, relatively peacefully in, in Beijing by renting a plaza, uh, was being uh, banned uh, primarily uh, triggered uh, because of the refusal to install face recognition camera by the state police in front of the pulpit. I mean, because they want to, you know, monitor everyone. And um, if you want to know more, I would uh, uh, suggest you Google like uh, AP uh, uh, kind of uh, a video report. Uh, help them. They, they they went to China 
documenting how these video cameras, face recognition cameras, were being installed in the around churches, uh, after churches from Henan uh, to Zhejiang province. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the facial recognition and the surveillance because yeah, one of the things is yeah, seeing all the the churches yeah having you know CCTV cameras in them basically monitor what's inside. And so it goes beyond you know even just WeChat is that there's so much that is being monitored all the time. And I know a lot of at least Chinese Christians you know are required to use some sort of you know you know lingo to kind of get around because yeah, it's unescapable the amount of surveillance in you know the messaging alone. And I know. Um, there are things in our technology, um, even around the world, where we keep using Chinese technology and uh, unknowing the, the risk that we're taking by putting in. I know the UK had a major issue with Huawei and you know putting it into their infrastructure. Is that there's a lot of things that you know are, people are concerned of a Chinese backdoor, and so when it comes to human rights, that is something you know you know we're always concerned about. And um, you know how do we address it without you know some local solutions? Um, I wish I had the immediate answer, but I think it's something that you know. Innovation to be innovation requires just better innovation and looking at you know what tools can we create in the future. I know you know the, uh, American developers have created their own kind of uh, encrypted apps. However, we know those can't necessarily get into China. And I think um, there is a calling for us in the states and people who are innovators to look at those solutions and how do we expand and democratize some of the uh, innovative messaging apps that we use and make those plausible and possible in China. And I think um, that's something that we have to work on going forward. And I think, you know, China is perhaps one of two of the worst digital authoritarians in the world. I would say China and Russia are, you know, right up there. I think recognizing them as such is really important. And I think this goes back to what June was saying about different tranches of sanctions. I, I know I've seen um, instances where there have been tranches of sanctions, for example, against uh, individual Chinese entities like Hikvision and otherwise um, that have either been placed on the entity list, I think, um, so commerce or treasury authorities. Um, but I think there might even be opportunities to go a step further and to identify individuals within the Chinese government that are perpetuating things like the, the Great Firewall, things that are cutting people off um, from access to communication. And I think that in addition to you know carrying a big stick, having carrots that uh, push for greater openness within the Chinese market is important, and that's where the innovation comes in. Because um, I think that the U.S. has been subversive in other markets, I'm thinking of North Korea in particular, when it comes to pushing for information access and that same type of priority, arguably even more vigorously, should be applied in the, in the Chinese context. I think I saw maybe one more question here, and then we'll have to close out the program. Uh, thank you. I'm Sam Nishihata from Happy Science USA Bureau. Uh, I think the CCP is always arguing don't interfere in domestic affairs in China. And that's their logic. So what do you think is, uh, could be the most effective way to protect human rights in China from international communities? Thank you. Want to take it first? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> the, the, the last part, I'm kind of from Asia or international community. Yeah. What, what are the yeah. most important things the international community can do? Yeah, I think to speak. I mean, if we, uh, the international community, do cherish and share the universal uh, uh, values, universal human rights, we need to really. Uh, speak on the same uh, page. I think not just uh, like, um, I mean, human rights in China is not a partisan issue. And uh, so I'm nervous that what's going to happen in the next few weeks, uh, as the report shows, uh, you know, this administration will relax the tariffs, you know, we will, we will lose a huge leverage and send a very wrong signal to the Communist Party. Uh, that, uh, oh, when we have a little bit, uh, well, we have the economic difficulties, so then we need to beg the Chinese Communist Party to rescue us. And uh, I think that will really hurt us. I think uh, both the U.S. and the EU would need to speak on the same platform. And also, the, 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 go back to the, the WeChat. WeChat is a public spying ware, period. So are we going to continue to allow them to operate in our soil, you know, Australian soil, or EU soil, in the United States soil. I mean, I, 
knew firsthand when I posted, just to try to post one little thing to like promote a summer camp in China. And then the very foreigner, a friend of mine, who went to China to Americans, uh, Caucasian American, for a sports summer camp, end up with his American passport confiscated, being interrogated right on the spot in a school sports realm. I mean, that's how the WeChat is working. Yeah. Yeah, I think just, you know, one of the areas is, you you know, the argument, yes, don't interfere in our internal affairs, but I think when it gets to um, exporting goods with forced labor, you know, or, you know, our businesses, you know, being expatriated into China, is these are our internal affairs. And so, therefore, it is our right to speak up and to start advocating for, you know, where we want, you know, human rights to be. Because, yeah, the minute start, goods start crossing back and forth, we are interconnected. These are our affairs. And so, I think we have every right to be speaking on these and championing these, these things. These because if we want to be engaged in the world, we have to talk about every issue um, and not just, you know, stay silent because, you know, they want us to be. So. I just want to echo my co-panelists here. I think one of the very important thing is not making the Chinese human rights issue a siloed issue. Make sure we address them on trade issue and security, as what Bob just said. And I think another important point is to continue enhance and strengthen the coalition, um, the democratic coalition, the coalition that um, that respect international order, and that includes in the multilateral fora, but also in some um, regional fora as well. Yep. That's really great. I'm so grateful to all of you for joining for, I guess, my last conversation here on the Heritage stage as a Heritage employee. I think you guys made it just a fascinating discussion. We'll miss you. <laughs> truly, truly grateful to you all. And thank you to everybody for joining us here today. Would you please uh, join me in thanking our panelists? Thank you.